Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 8, incidental episode. Mike Hawthorne. Thank you very much indeed for joining us for this incidental episode of Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. I don't have a cup of tea today. I have a bottle of dandelion and burdock, which um, I don't know if international connoisseurs would know what on earth this is, but it is certainly over here in the UK, the uh, a traditional drink to go with fish and chips, which I've had for me dinner. And uh, basically, I've had a really good Saturday, sorry. I've really had enjoyed uh, kind of catching up on comics and uh, books that I hadn't actually gotten around to reading. Um, including some upcoming stuff from Image and from Boom. So it's been good to kind of just sit and be and read comics, which has been a lot of fun. But um, it's great that we're going to get the chance, uh, certainly for a short period of time, to talk to a special guest today. You probably know him best as uh, the artist on books like uh, Deadpool or Spider-Man. I know with Deadpool it was an epic run he did with uh, Jerry Duggan. But you may know him as well from books like uh, G.I. Joe uh, Origins, uh, Conan as well. Uh, basically, the man keeps himself busy. Ladies and gents, uh, welcome along to Mike Hawthorne, who's joined Hello. us. Hello there, Mike. How the devil are you, sir? Very good, very good. How are you? I'm surviving. There we go. <laughs> it's 2020. I'm surviving. Lord, I think yeah. that's the def- default answer. Um, <laughs> what, 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 the way I've been starting this run of uh, Talking Con is with three questions. Number one, I've explained what beverage I've got to hand. What have you uh, got to hand? What's your cup of tea or cup I, of uh, beverage to choose? I have I have a very small cup of espresso. Uh, it's probably one of about ten I'll have today, just to <laughs> stay awake all day. <laughs> um, but enough. yeah, yeah, very strong stuff. Nothing in it, no sugar or anything. Fair enough. The other question is: Can you remember the first comic that you remember? Not necessarily the first one you got, right? But that first one that you remember the credit box, the first one you actually recognized that there was somebody actually putting pen to paper or actually creating stuff. Because we've talked about this on the show before. Right. Sometimes I think for a lot of kids, we just think, crap, comics, they just come yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. They just appear out of the blue. But yeah. no, there's got to be that one book where you just went, ah, hang on, there's a mind behind this. Yeah, that's a great, actually, I'm glad you phrased it that way because my introduction to comics uh, was from uh, a godbrother who had comics and he was... Uh, it's, this was the day when people would buy comics and then toss them when they were done reading. And he had, I didn't realize at the time, his tastes were very sophisticated for kind of a, a poor street kid. But he would hand me off stuff like Judge Dredd and Oddball, like black and white comics. And these, those, those big, what is, the, the Conan magazines, the oversized one, what were they called? Yeah. Savage Conan or whatever. I'd say the first time I realized uh, there were people behind it was an issue of the X-Men when... It was drawn by Mark Silvestri, and I remember thinking there was something about his art that uh, that that seemed different from the stuff I had been seeing before him. And this is—I don't know why—for some reason that was the guy. And I remember rolling the comic up, putting it in my pocket, riding home, and showing it to all my friends, and somehow trying to explain to them that this was a person who woke up every day, went to work, drawing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and and collected a paycheck somehow um and they all looked at me crazy and you know we went back to whatever eating dirt or whatever we did <laughs> so, 
So yeah, that was the one. I'm, that's a great question, actually. I think for myself, I mean, it was a 2008 uh, strip myself. Yeah. I think it was slain because uh, it was the the oddest oddest thing to see on the page. And it was just like, I think that was the moment where I went from like Desperate Dan or something in the Beano or Dennis right. Menace or whatever, and just going, okay, someone's brain thought that up. Yeah. What the hell? I can uh, see that. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mentioned Slane because Simon Bisley was, was very influential for me early on as a kid. And Slane was one of those books. I think that might have been the first time I'd seen a painted comic, which kind of exploded my head a little bit. And and then his work on on like ABC Warriors was there was just something about his approach that probably fits in line with Silvestri in some ways. Yeah, I can um, see a line there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and I, I'm proud to say I got to actually work for 2000 AD. I did a Judge Dredd short, which was a huge thrill for me because I always said I wanted to do at least one Dredd story, and no knock. To, to the US publishers, but I wanted to do it specifically for 2000 AD. Somehow that felt more real to me. <laughs> um, Makes sense. So yeah, that was fun. That's, that's, that's a great, that was a great comic. And it was it's, very weird. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, people kind of think of the dreads and they think of the, uh, yeah, the ABC Warriors, the, the, the slightly more mainstream titles, the Yastronium Dogs and all of that. Right. But there were some stories in that book that yeah. were um, they were coming from a whole other place, mostly yeah. out of um, sheer pressure of getting a book out <laughs> on a weekly basis. But uh, yeah, there's no, there's no real editorial oversight when you've got to get a book out at some point. Yeah, um, and they yeah. would do some fun. I mean, I, I've actually told my kids about there was a sequence in a Slain comic. I don't think it was drawn by Bisley. I'm not sure who it was. It was actually painted. I can't remember who, but there's a sequence where they're fighting these Roman sh soldiers and they go into the turtle formation. And so Slane just drives cattle into them. I thought it was the funniest <laughs> damn thing. Um, so, yeah, it's funny that, that that particular book stuck with me more so than probably, you know, even ABC Warriors or Dread, although I was a, I loved Dread. I didn't follow it. Uh, where I, I, If I would see a Slane comic, I'd, you know, in some oddball place, I would pick it up. Yeah. No questions yeah. asked. I think um, for me, I mean, yeah, like I say, Slane was the one that kind of opened my eyes. But yeah, I'm an, I'm an ABC warrior. Kind yeah. Of oh, that's I'm so good. I, 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 I cannot draw for hell. I, I, can't, <laughs> I, I, can't, I used to, and I did art at school, but it's something that's fallen off the wayside. But um, I remember tracing Mad Magazines, and I traced Joe Pineapples, you know, that, that famous yeah, one. Yeah, the, yeah, hell yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I, wow. And, and, and then back. I just then I discovered cider and girls and art, art, <laughs> art, art kind of faded off into my into the periphery. Well, I, I understand, sir. Frankly, I didn't draw for a while there as a as a kid. Once I discovered girls myself, yeah, cool. it's 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 a shame. I think probably most people have some connection to drawing and get why comics would be fun. And it's just a thing that is. Um, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but here it's definitely something that's, uh, I won't say it's looked down on, but people sort of think you're odd if you draw or that you're going to be homeless or something. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's down to the um, kind of approach of the um, government that's in power at the time. I, yeah. um, uh, certainly when I was going through middle school, sort of 14, 15, my, <laughs> the, the, the secondary school that I went to, uh, was uh, known for producing the most amount of commercial artists in the wow. UK. Wow! It was it was known for that. So the there was this whip back, um, and they just 
poured all the money into sciences and um, yeah. computer sciences, and yeah. the arts just got sidelined literally as I was coming through it. So, oh, uh, that's awful. It's a crime. Like, it's, uh, you know, I remember being in, um, in an art school, and it was a, a guy I got to know who had spent some time in Italy. And he says, There's something about the culture there where, like, even though uh, not everyone draws, they all have an eye for it. So you go there and they'll say, hey, uh, you drew the foot wrong and here's how you make it right, even though they themselves can't draw. And uh, my wife's from Greece, so we spent a summer there and I'll be damned, I, I, I sort of got suckered into doing a portrait. I shouldn't say suckered, uh, that, that's too strong a word, but I ended up doing a portrait of a cousin of hers and people would come through and say, oh yeah, that one eye is higher than the other. This." The, one nostril doesn't line up with the other. and and they would be right every single time I, I it was the weirdest group crit of non-artists <laughs> but um i don't know i don't know if it's just uh the i know there's that sort of imaginary divide or at least i hear about it from my european family and friends that there's the the hot europe cold europe or you know the north and south where the northern ones are the ones that are responsible for making money and the southern ones that are the bums that <laughs> and uh and they just i guess i don't know if it's just a cultural thing they just decide we don't care if there's money in it we love it anyway uh i would be surprised also like we would um you know if we we were standing outside a museum with someone i thought was not terribly bright and then i mentioned el greco and she like goes on to give my kids like a history lesson about him mm -hmm. use his real name and so th there's something in the air there i guess that that is uh, I, I envy it a little bit, you know? Uh, it may also be just the fact that like art is everywhere. Like I, I, this friend of mine told me how like, you know, there was some old lady in his, where he was staying who had a, a Caravaggio like above her mantle, you know, just happened to have the damn thing. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I think there's also that element as well that um, they're known. I mean, it's like uh, France. It's known <laughs> as the country of lovers. Therefore, I'm, I'm guaranteed they bloody practice just to keep the to keep the to keep the rep, to keep the reputation up. Likewise with Italy, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah. Now the third question I usually ask, um, I know it's going to be slightly. I don't know how relevant it's going to be for yourself because I know that you um, made the decision very early doors um, in your career to kind of forego conventions um and it's something that you you kind of stop doing relatively yeah. early on the, the question i usually ask is can you remember your first convention and um can you remember any uh the the, the people that you saw in terms of uh artists or creators that yeah you met them vividly um so my first convention was in philadelphia so it was the i guess it would have been the wizard con at the time and uh I was broke, so I wasn't a convention goer. Like the idea of, pet, of spending, you know, whatever, 10, 20 bucks to get in the door somewhere and you didn't get anything other than in the door was, uh, was a luxury I couldn't afford. But when I was in art school, uh, I was uh, a, a friend of mine and I had this fantasy that we could pitch a Grendel story to Matt Wagner. And he was a Philly guy, so we thought, uh, you know, he's always hiring other artist teams. Um, I bet we could, you know, talk him into it. <laughs> and so we went and I had this whole pitch with, with the writer friend. And of course he was very polite. He critted the work. He says, I'm not publishing your book, um, but we should keep in touch. And it turned out we had the same illustration professor, but about 15 years apart. He had studied art in Philly wow. too. Yeah, so that was a great uh, uh, way to get to know the guy. 
Um, and he went on to give me my first big break. I, I drew a Grendel black, white, and red uh, story for him. And it was especially instructive for me because I, I don't know that I really got how to make a comic until I worked with him. Uh, I was sort of approaching, I would do sample pages every weekend because uh, I was a, a glutton for punishment. I was, I was determined to break into the industry, which I never did in terms of sending in submissions. So, but I would, I would have all my uh, regular classes during the week and I worked about 38 hours in addition to that. And then I'd spend the weekend trying to do two to three sample pages to send out. Um, but it took Matt both giving me a big break in terms of uh, offering me a gig, but also sort of instructing me. Like uh, I, I, I was doing this weird thing of going almost like animation moment to moment, uh, which I came to realize years later when I did a, a, a French series that probably made me more suited for a more European format where you have 12 panels per page and it's more kind of uh, uh, moment to moment. But he would say like, hey man, you can do, you can let some of that action happen in the gutters, like stop with the storyboard. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if there's somebody that would, who has that particular style down, it's it's him. Because um, he's, he, yeah, uh, I mean, I haven't actually read, read Grendel for a while, but I remember that was something, it was all very much show, not tell. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was very uh, iconic in its approach. No, I know what you mean. Um, it was very iconic in his approach where you he would come up with an image that just stuck in your head and the story uh, was sort of built around it. So I mean, you have everybody has that that Hunter Rose image with the roses around them kind of embedded in their brain after familiar with the comic. So uh, he was a great teacher. He was a great champion. The guy uh, brought me into Dark Horse. And he and Diana Schultz, who uh, no longer works at Dark Horse, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, if not for them, if not for that one con, and it was it was funny because I hadn't I didn't have any experience with conventions at the time, and so I thought it was I was trying to treat it like a job interview, <laughs> um, uh -huh. which is which was probably silly. And then um, I remember going after I spoke to two more people, uh, and then I left. I didn't realize like you should hang out at the con and enjoy the place. So I went, I spoke to Joe Casada, who was still, um, he was just at a table. I don't think he was running. He wasn't quite the Joe Casada of, of now. Yeah. And he gave me a nice crit, but he was, you know, like you could tell he was there to, to do his thing. And then I approached um, a woman and this bugs me because for the life of me, I can't remember who it was. I just remember walking past her table and liking her work and asking if she would crit my comics. And I was coming out of an art school environment where that's that's like 90% of the time in class, maybe 90s over overblown, maybe 75% of the time in class, you're going over people's work and critting things nonstop. So that's what I thought was natural. Uh, and I asked her for a crit and she just looked me in the eye very coldly and says, I can't help you. You know, I can't help Whoa. you. Right? And I didn't realize, uh, and it, I don't, I don't blame her for this. I, I use this as an example of how naive I was. I didn't realize how transactional conventions were. I didn't realize that uh, she probably was facing people like me coming up to her saying, "Hey, can you give me a gig, or can you hook me up with someone?" I, I wouldn't have thought Louise Simonson would have been that hard. <laughs> you know, it could have been. I, I, I don't honestly, I don't remember. I, for the, and I, 
there's a part of me that wishes I could nail it down because I feel like I should apologize to her because I want to say like <laughs> I didn't really want anything. I genuinely wanted a crit. Um, and I remember just saying, okay, I don't get I don't get what's going on here, and I just left and and hung out in Philly the rest of the afternoon. Fair enough. That yeah, kind of makes yeah. sense. Well, I mean, it says lots that that you were bullish enough to go up to tables and just go right. Oh, I was please. scared to death, though, man. Yeah, I was terrified. This was not easy for me. I, I really just thought uh, it was like a do or die moment. Uh, it took a lot of me talking myself into doing this because I genuinely I hated the idea. Uh, I hated. <laughs> I was just. I just didn't, uh, I, I've never been a good networking type of a person. Even when I do, did go to conventions, um, I always end up hanging out with the same two or three guys or, or, or girls that I kind of came up with. And that's it. I just, you know, it, and I'm also a little hyperactive. So it's difficult for me to sit still, which you're probably going to notice while I'm trying to stay in place here. Um, but to I, I was going to put it down to the coffee. <laughs> no, no, no. The coffee uh, helps me focus, believe it or not. Like the, it, I would be a spaz. I would be jumping all over the walls uh, normally. But um, uh, I, I found that, that conventions were just, I would have trouble sitting at a table. It was never anything like fans did something spooky or, or creepy and, and made me not want to attend them. Uh, it was more about me and uh, just not being built for it. You know, I, I actually enjoyed the public uh interaction quite a bit i just don't like it in, in conventions what we used yeah. to do uh when i decided okay i'm not really going to do cons uh and then uh ringo passed away and so we started a charity cookout at a friend's comic shop so once a year that would be my big public event i'd set up a grill i'd cook lunch for everybody uh because i had a background in, in uh as a cook and We'd make like Greek kebabs and, and burgers and stuff, and we'd have a couple hundred people come through, and they would donate food to the food bank. Uh, one of the food banks I used to go to as a kid, uh, not quite directly the same food bank, it's changed names, but same organization. And, uh, and then I could like talk with fans face-to-face -face as opposed to behind a table. Uh, and it's a different experience when you're handing them a plate of food versus <laughs> taking money from them, you know what I mean? So, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's something that I've tried to cover a lot on this show for the many years, uh, for the, the years that I've been doing it, is um, number one, try and encourage people, more people to go to Artist Alley and yeah. head down that uh, end of a convention. And number two, to kind of how to bridge that gap across the table, because yeah. certainly for fans, it can be a bit intimidating because there's these people you don't want to meet your heroes and for that to let you down. And then there's the whole transaction thing. And then yeah. the, I, I think people can also recognize that people on the other side of the table, they kind of came there for a reason too. They yeah. wanted to, yeah. to interact. But I, I found it interesting when you said that you, um, you, you you didn't do conventions and I was wondering why that was the case. Um, when it came to those shows that you did go to, was were there any kind of wobbly knees moments with creators where <laughs> you, you met them and went, oh, God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I have, I have three. Uh, one where I was just a chicken and, and I saw Mike Mignola at a table and nobody was talking to him. And I remember... Probably because they were as intimidated as you were. <laughs> well, I just remember thinking, I must be confused. That can't be him. Why isn't he being mobbed? And I regret, I, I was too chicken to go up and introduce myself. Um, 
And once uh, I was up for an Eisner and I got, <clears throat> I, uh, Will was still alive. This was the last year he was at the Eisners. And so we're in the, in the, in the hall and I had never been to an Eisner award ceremony. I snuck a friend in with me from college who like, uh, I told everybody, I, you couldn't just bring anybody in. So I told him he was my assistant. So he sat at the table with me, uh, just so I can sneak him in. And we're, we were sitting there and probably being goofier than everyone around us, just cause I don't get, I mean, <laughs> I'm just, I don't get to do this kind of stuff often. So, um, I see him from across the room and he's being mobbed. Like he's got cameras pointed at him and everybody's running up to talk to him. And there's this kind of sense of like, hi, Mr. Eisner and talking, but also looking at the camera and kind of playing to it. Yeah. I thought like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Uh, I'm going to wait and see if he's alone at some point and then try to talk to him. Uh, and it was right before the ceremony was going to start cameras roll out. Everybody goes back to their table. And so I, I, uh, walk up to him and introduced myself. And I said, you know, uh, your work means the world to me. And, uh, this is my first time here. I'm really honored. And you're the reason that one of the reasons I got into comics and the guy, he puts his hand on my shoulder. He looks me deep in the eye and he goes, I'm sorry. It was I the saw, funniest I damn saw thing. that coming. Yeah. It was the funniest <laughs> damn thing. Uh, and it, it, it broke the ice. And I just thought like, this guy's amazing. He said, this was, it was a great moment. And, uh, and then the third one was with, um, uh, Sergio uh, Argonis Whoa. and yeah and uh, I was walking it actually was the same year I was walking up to an elevator with Mike Oming who's a very close friend of mine uh, he's the power uh, artist on powers and a bunch yeah. of stuff um, and as we're approaching the elevator Sergio comes off and I start to this is the only time I was ever like speechless around someone and I wanted to to introduce myself or say something and I'm kind of I was absolutely like dumbstruck and I get onto the elevator and Mike says hi to him in kind of a passing I think they sort of knew each other and uh right as the elevator doors are closing Mike sticks his head out and says he's a huge fan and then the doors close <laughs> and I swear it was something out of a movie as as the elevator's going down we hear him uh say he must have yelled towards the doors thank you it was amazing yeah and he went on Matter, as a matter of fact, it was the same year as I, uh, when I was at the Eisner's, because I remember he performed. He actually sang uh, a song in Spanish. Nice. The guy's amazing. I, th I think I've been very lucky. I mean, I, uh, regular viewers will listen know I'm a, a professional DJ by trade. So you kind of have to learn that thing of where you just turn on the mic and you have to turn it on. You have yeah. to, uh, be, you have to basically become someone else in front of a crowd. And right. it's, I've, I've never actually blanked out in front of a, a room. And it, however big the guests I've been able to speak to in front of a convention or whatever, with one exception, and it was Frank Miller. I bet. Uh, it, was, it was in a VIP, which means it, it was in a room smaller than where I am right now. So it was yeah. like 20 odd people. And Frank Miller was four foot away from me and I was about to start my first question. My brain just went, wow over over there for a second yeah like, yeah ah it's the, <laughs> thankfully it's the only time but my god that was that was, well, again, I mean, it was if you're gonna do it with someone it's gonna be him and he kind of has i mean he's he's not a 
very robust man, but he, he has an intimidating presence too. I don't know about that because, I mean, the year, two years before, I think I was in Hall H for a Sin City panel or something. And at that point, that he was a little frail or there was some, there was something not. Yeah. The, 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 the record was skipping. If, right. if that's one way of putting it. Um, but then, like I said, I did this, it was at um, uh, MCM in London. We did the, I did the VIP uh, sessions with him and I wasn't too sure what to expect. And I asked my first question and you just suddenly realize that there's some steel behind the eyes and yeah. it, there's, it's all, you know, it was all that, there. Yeah. That's just, what I mean. He's very, he has an intimidating presence. There's something about the way he, Sort of, because I've I've been in a room with him, and I remember thinking like, yeah, I'm not talking to this guy. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I won't be able to keep up. Um, yeah, I made I made the mistake of making a, a slightly rambling first question because okay, <laughs> I managed to get the first uh, uh, the brain backing here. Ask the rambling question, and then he just turned around and said, okay, repeat that question word for word, and I went. I can't. Q&A. Off we go. Yeah, and it's yeah, yeah. Fine. Yeah. I, I knew when I'd been beaten. Yes. But there we go. Um, let's talk about your start in art, because I know that you came in via graffiti art. It was, um, uh, it, that, that's something, it, it wasn't comics per yeah, se well, that you, no. it was your first focus, graffiti is when you started. Is that something that you still kind of keep an eye on? Is that something you keep, still keep your hand in? I, I don't. Uh, I, I think I, every so often I'll think, you know, it might be fun, and I realize like I'm far too old to get to risk getting <laughs> nabbed. Uh, you know, how am I going to explain to the kids? Hey, sorry, I was out at two in the morning last night writing graffiti, and I got caught. <laughs> um, uh, but I think the reason why it was pivotal for me was sort of the the there, there's you know I grew up in a world where there wasn't like books and art and and uh, any luxuries per se. So getting to see drawings you essentially just had graffiti and the occasional guy who wrote graffiti in his notebook that was sort of the thing everybody wanted to draw and um, I had always sketched and doodled but there was something about the combination of uh, like the pictures and the words that made something click and uh, that's why I think it's such a, a direct link from that to comics uh, and I think it's also the impression as well. It's it's an instant impact. Yes. If you if you get if you get any tag right, you're gonna. Yes. It's not something you're gonna kind of. You can't be washy about it. Otherwise, someone else will just turn around and paint all over you. Exactly. Literally. Exactly. And and also, there was something about the fact that all this stuff meant something, um, and in a way that I could understand. I know that most art has meaning, uh, but to us, you know, it. No one could understand. Uh, you know especially modern art at the time it would have been difficult for us to sort of interpret uh not till someone like like samo or uh uh basquiat uh that you know fine art seemed to correspond with something we grew up with so I, that was definitely my intro then obviously comics and uh eventually going i was lucky enough that i went to a city high school that had an exceptional art program um mostly because the guy running it, his name is Nelson Dodson, uh, was just an in incredible human being. He's actually the reason uh, I went to art school in the first place. Um, we had a deal when I took his art class that if I continued to fill up sketchbooks, he would always replace them. So nice. I had this kind of constant source of, of uh, art supplies and someone who said, 
to me, hey, you are actually good at something, uh, which didn't happen often. So that was really, really uh, informative for me. And going off to art school was kind of a weird turn for me. Well, I mean, the first art school I attended was a thing here called the uh, Pennsylvania Governor's School for the Arts, where it was all the arts, not just the visual arts. And all of a sudden, I'm in this program. And it was all expenses paid if you got past the, the gatekeepers. Um, and I was, you know, my roommate was an opera singer who now sings for the Seattle Philharmonic. And, uh, you know, I'm all of a sudden around ballet dancers and, and uh, classical pianists and all this stuff that I had never I mean, it might as well have been Martians. I had no experience <laughs> with that. <laughs> um, and it made me think differently about the art uh, in a way that I realized I had a lot of work to do. So then I went off to uh, a, a painting program in Philly and took it very, very seriously. I, or as seriously as, as a hyperactive goofball could take something. Um, and just threw myself into painting and drawing the figure. And I mean, my degree is, I, I've never, I've never taken a comics drawing class. I only took one illustration class. Uh, most of my training is like kind of classical painting and figure drawing, uh, which is a weird reversal from just drawing, you know, somebody's name in graffiti for 50 cents, just so I could buy a bag of chips or something. <laughs> so, yeah. I think that also gives that real sense of, well, I mean, to, uh, I think a good art school also gives two things. It gives that sense of, um form of industry that sense of you there's yeah. a, a, you have to complete something for a paycheck or there's a, a sense of the yeah. the business involved the business so absolutely uh, and also it, it grounds you in the whole sense of like say it's great that you had uh, dancers available that, yeah. there was this sense of form and movement that you, yeah you could draw from yeah i mean we one of the one of our assignments was actually go to going to the theater to draw the dancers, uh, I guess the you know on some sort of like Degas inspired assignment, mm -hmm. but uh, it was it was a huge deal for me. I mean, I hadn't done any so I hadn't done anything like this, so getting that kind of exposure was a huge huge deal, and it's something that, in retrospect, I realize is really the simplest thing in the world. Like uh, giving a kid a sketchbook and just say go draw stuff you see is as simple as it gets it, and but it's life altering if the, the kid really really takes to it so i regretted i mean and I'm, not that i i loved graffiti but you know i recognized pretty fast that like i had kept my study very narrowly focused on you know how to draw a really cool r or how to draw a brick pattern or something uh you know how to collect the right kind of caps for for your paint but um it was it was a good way it was it was an odd way of getting an art education but i think it was a formative one and it was a good one is that the kind of i mean it's something i've not actually asked that many uh, creatives who've gone to art school is that the kind of um training that allows you to if not skip completely it can dull the impact of uh, imposter syndrome that you have a classical background you have a, a, a dedicated training uh, that's a good question art. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever thought about it. Because I think there are times when I felt like, uh, you know, 
the jig is up. I'm, I'm, I'm there. Well, I, I, guarantee, I guarantee every artist still has imp yeah. imposter yeah. syndrome at yeah. some point, but yeah. I, I do think the one thing that it has given me is, um, I, I don't, and I should knock wood. I don't often get something like artist block. I'm not a hundred percent sure I get what people are describing when they say they have artist block, um, because I can always lean on training. Uh, to this day, I still, you know, I draw a lot, uh, even by illustrator and comic book artist standards, um, for a couple of reasons. Number one is uh, I still, like, as I said, I, I still train. I take it really seriously. Uh, I will get before the quarantine, I will try to get to a figure drawing session once a week minimum. Uh, if not that, then I will work from photographs and do warm-ups and things like that, just to sort of sharpen the tools. Uh, the way I see it is, and I hate to use sports metaphors, but like, you know, if if Serena Williams still gets up and practices and LeBron still practices, then I should probably still practice because um, it means something to me to be a professional. And uh, I, I don't want to get comfortable and think, well, look, you know, I've made it. I'll be fine from here on out. Um, but the other thing is, I also believe in sort of, uh, you know, that, that adage of like, you know, you make a hundred bucks, you put 10 away, you pay yourself first. Uh, I can't do that as an artist necessarily, but I do, uh, I, I basically pay myself first in terms of my output. So I will take at least one drawing a day that's something that i'll own or something that i can throw into an art book or on my patreon or on my uh, uh, uh like a we do a digital and a print design or zine i've been told that i say zine wrong sorry um that's english as a second language kicking in <laughs> um, you sounded fine to me <laughs> okay cool uh but it's a way of um keeping the work a little more fresh and interesting. If, if, if I didn't do warm-ups and if I didn't sketch as much as I do, uh, I feel like the work itself on the page would become more and more stagnant because so much of what happens in the sketchbook um, and the training I do makes its way to the pages uh, before too long, frankly, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's something that um... – <laughs> For yourself, it's a different question to what I would usually be asking uh, when I've been talking to people over the course of the summer and over the course of pandemic and lockdown. Because one of the questions I've been asking is how people's creativity has been um, in terms of, is it something that has you know, bogged them down? Is it the, the, the situation they're in has just kind of closed them down? Or is yeah. it something that's freed them up? For yourself, I mean, I've seen on your social media that it's you do... You, the engine is very much still running. It's very yeah. the, all the the, uh, the the creativity is still there. Um, other, yeah. I mean, in terms of the pandemic, how did it affect you and your work, and how you were approaching yeah. your work? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is where I think. Um, then again, having kids around yeah. <laughs> kind of helps. Yeah, I mean, we we have always sort of run a very tight ship, and. Um, things because of my background and where we live, there's always something going bad. So uh, there's a little bit of uh, 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 Odysseus, you know, tying himself to the mast kind of uh, going on in the studio often. So I will often, if, if I feel a break or something coming, uh, I will overcommit sometimes on purpose. So 
during the quarantine, we saw it happening sort of in slow motion because we're on the East Coast. We're near New York, near enough. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. And so we luckily didn't get it as bad. Uh, we're closer to Philly than New York, so um, it was always a danger. It could get really bad, and and uh, so we, you know, my wife and I, I looked at the the thing and I said, I, I know that comics is theoretically going to keep going. I'm going to plan like I like, I like I like the caveat there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pretend like it's not. Uh, so I that's when we put together. We actually. Uh, launched another kickstarter during the quarantine uh so that i had to do something it's sort of if i give myself a deadline uh i can amp up the productivity so we we just went all in um we launched the patreon which i thought maybe this is too much but it's been a real pleasure to have that as an outlet to create uh you know like just little projects that i wouldn't have had the opportunity to do normally um so the quarantine, I, I, I don't, I can't speak for most other people, but for us, we, I tend to do better when, when things are kind of bad. Um, you know, a few years ago, uh, my wife's brother passed away and he was very, very young and, um, we saw it coming. And so one of the things I did was sat down and nailed down my schedule for six months. Cause I knew, uh, I probably fall apart, but if I had, uh, schedule that I could put one foot in front of the other. Uh, it would force me to to keep producing because I have so many people depending on me. Sure. Uh, and it came about. It's actually. Um, uh, I don't know if you've ever read uh, uh, Slaughterhouse. Is it Slaughterhouse Five? Yes, yes Slaughterhouse Five. Yeah, Vonnegut. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, there's the scene in there where the uh, the British troops have been in the camp for years, and the Americans start showing up. And the Brits are saying, okay, you guys got to get up in the morning, got to shave, you got to stop looking like shit, you got to take care of yourselves. We still have to, you're still soldiers in here. And the Americans are like, oh, I don't wanna, I wanna just, this sucks. And I, that for some reason is one of the things in the book that stuck with me the most. So I find that I just operate better if, even if I'm in the camps, I get up and get dressed and get, get to work and treat, uh, treat everything as if, you know, whatever's happening now is temporary. We still have the future to, to plan for. And so it's kept me creative. It's kept me uh, still producing quite a bit. We're about to put out the Life Studied Art Collection book. It's off at the printer now. Uh, I, was, uh, I was bugging Marvel quite a bit saying, hey, I know that there was sort of a moment where they said pencils down. Everybody has to wait for yeah. a little bit. And I said, uh, this can't work for me. I need to do stuff. So uh, sort of became this like, uh, you know, public face of Marvel where I was doing live stream uh, lessons and, and, and uh, I was just willing to jump on any of that stuff. And because of my background, I'm flexible enough that, uh, you know, that's, that it doesn't take a huge, it's, it's the ship's small enough to turn pretty quickly, basically. <laughs> so yeah, the quality well, I mean wasn't so bad. I mean, it, I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know what setting I've pressed, but it, I think it's like, I think it's both Patreon and Kickstarter. For some strange reason, for yourself, I see all of your following of uh, projects, backing of projects. That you you are someone that really kind of has been a real supporter of other projects as well that's going on uh, throughout the course of. Uh, we we probably follow each other on on 
uh, yeah. Kickstarter. I think what happens is I linked my Kickstarter to my Facebook and I started mm -hmm. to see, uh, I started to hear this from people and I started to see that I would see notifications when my friends would back things. So I'm not sure how exactly that works out, but yeah, I do try to, um, I try to support projects that probably need the attention more so like than than say, uh, you know, I know the, Boom is doing a project currently with with uh, Keanu Reeves. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, which is awesome. It's huge, but that doesn't need my attention. Um, whereas if I if I back something and then post about it, the real thing I'd like to do is post about it and spread the word and and get little projects off the ground that I think uh, really really are sorely needed in comics culture. So uh, that's probably what you're seeing. Yeah, fair enough. Because I mean, I was going to ask the kind of projects that attract your attention. I mean, uh, in terms of the kind of books and projects that you follow and and back, um, is there a, a specific art form or a, a specific? I mean, what's the kind of thing that really kind of grabs your gotcha. attention? Um, you know, you've probably noticed that they're all over the place. I don't know that I have a a really I think specific. That's the reason I asked. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I have a soft spot, obviously, for, for Latino projects, just because I'd like to see more of those. Um, that's not to say that I will just back something because a Latino's done it. I, I still believe that uh, I want to support a creator that's invested in their own work. Uh, but I don't know that I have a really, like, a trigger that says, yeah, that's, that's my thing. Um, in fact, there are probably lots of things that... I would absolutely buy if I saw in a store that I wouldn't back on on uh, Kickstarter. For instance, we mentioned the Keanu book. Like that's probably something I would read. I probably won't back it on Kickstarter. I I posted about it on my website, and I think that's probably the the extent of my interest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Purely because the whole idea of a company or indeed a creator that doesn't necessarily need a kickstarter yeah to get the yeah. book done yeah uh, that's that was going to sell uh, uh you stuck his name on it it was going to sell so yeah i think it's gotten to be uh a more so i'm i was with you 100 percent up until recently with um i was thinking of certain projects that i was backing and i started to realize that like um I think Kickstarter has gone beyond just a, a store and now running some myself, you realize it's, it's more in line with Patreon where you get to communicate with the backers. It's a smaller group of people. Yeah. If someone buys your book in a comic shop, you'll never know. Uh, but if they're buying it from you on a Kickstarter, uh, it's, it's just a better form of, of a, God, I hate to use the word transaction, but. Well, I, 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 the way I've been uh, describing it is, um, it's a dialogue. It's an absolute, it's an absolute communication right. with not just an audience, but specific members of the audience. There's yes. a real to and yes. a to and fro. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, once we started doing Kickstarters, I would see the same names over and over and you start to get to know these people and then they back you on Patreon and you get to know more. Um, and it was a thing that I realized I had missed out on by not going to conventions, um, by not being as public in the comics community as, as I probably should have been. Um, and I started to notice that it, that people valued 
knowing that they were getting a book directly from me, that I probably held the thing, signed it, packed it up myself, or, you know, my wife and I. Um, and that was something, I mean, I had started my, my, you know, when I broke into comics, I did it self-publishing. And before I self-published, I used to make the little hand, you know, like little handmade, hand-stapled, photocopied comics and drop them off at shops in Philly. And that's the thing that stuck with me. And it's a thing that I started to lose as I got deeper and deeper into mainstream comics. So I think that's where that is. Now, I can't speak for Boom. Uh, and you're right, Keanu clearly doesn't need the money. Um, he doesn't strike, I don't know the guy, obviously, but from the stories you read about him, he doesn't strike me as a selfish guy. No. So my guess is that this was just a way, it's a, it's a month-long PR machine when you have a Kickstarter running, right? So I think it's probably a way of like like building excitement, launching the series in a bigger way, and getting people and like connected. you say, commu communicating with the yeah, connecting with the fans. Yeah. I mean, you kind of got that with Bill and Ted as well. He was him yeah. and Alex. I mean, Alex is Alex Winter as a filmmaker uh, is somebody who very much wants to communicate with the fans. So yeah. I can guarantee he just yeah. Yeah, arm and arm. <laughs> they, yeah, they, they kind of right? they 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 start communication with the yeah. fans and especially yeah. when, when shows shut down. Uh, this is maybe the only option we have, right? So, uh, I think there's some value to that. Yeah, which begs the question about happiness will follow them because it is an incredibly personal story. I mean, it's not about autobiography, of course it is. Yeah, um, but. I am wondering why then you went to Boom as a publisher for it instead of going the uh, the Kickstarter or Patreon route. Yeah, as yeah. you know that direct dialogue with a, an audience. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm wondering why the, this book is something that you didn't put to your Kickstarter. That's a that's a good question, and and um, part of it is uh, the history of the book and having never intended to do an autobiographical book. Uh, I did it, and, and forgive me if anybody's heard this story already because I've had to tell it a few times, but um, I did it originally for Vertigo, and it was specifically because they requested it, which at the time, and you probably remember, you didn't just walk in and get a book at Vertigo. No. This was a huge, huge deal. And I was already working on a book um, called The Unmen, and I had done some stuff with Harvey P. Carr and just uh, the Exterminators and a bunch of little things at Vertigo. And I was at a signing in, in Manhattan and we were, my editor and I, John Vankian, were talking about the brief and wondrous life of Oscar Wilde, which had won the Pulitzer, I think, at the time. And he was obsessed with it. And I said, you know, that happened to me with the whole uh, cursed child thing. And his eyes bugged out and he demanded I tell him the story. I did. And he says, if you want to publish that, I want to put it out. And I was bowled over because I thought, first of all, um, this doesn't happen. It's vertigo. At the time, people were falling all over themselves to get a series of vertigo. And so I thought, well, I don't want to do this book, but I can't tell him that. So I'll do the damn book and then I'll have a pitch ready and I'll do some version of 100 Bullets or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, I'll, and I'll be off to the races. And this book will just have been a, a uh, you know, first step towards building that up at Vertigo. And that was unfortunately right before the New 52. And uh, the, the, the huge upheaval that was happening at DC at the time before their move to LA. So um, 
after a little bit of a fight, about a year and a half later, I got the rights back for the book and was terrified to show it to anybody. Uh, so I sat on it. I sat on it, frankly, for just about 10 years, I think it was. And I had shown it to some agents because I thought, I have this book. I probably should do something with it. It was literally already penciled, inked, uh, and the first chapter was lettered, although it was not colored. And um, I was just scared to death that if that that you know after almost losing it to to DC Vertigo, uh, I shouldn't say losing it, but they owned the rights for a long time, and it was a weird feeling to have them owning your story wow. in that yeah. sense. So I thought um, I have to be extremely careful with this, but. Agents didn't know what to do with it. Uh, I, I probably approached about eight and had all kinds of answers, uh, uh, weird conversations and answers that didn't make sense to me. One, one agent came close to, to deciding to sell the pitch, the book rather, uh, but said that it looked too well drawn, that I drew it too well, which was the weirdest damn thing to come full circle what from. What a strange note uh, to come yeah, back with. Yeah, it was... Um, I recognize now why he thought it. Uh, I think he was thinking, and this is probably the case for most of the bookstore market. Um, if there's a certain level of sophistication to the art, then it feels too mainstream to them. They're looking for something. Uh, Lo-fi. Yeah. Yeah. To say it nicely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 it was a weird conversation. I came full circle from not being able to get gigs because I wasn't good enough to not being able to get gigs because I was too good. So... <laughs> I, I sat on it for a long time, and it was actually because of Jerry Dugan uh, when we were working on, on uh, Deadpool. Uh, just in, we got to know each other really well. We got to be good friends, and we talked about this book, and I showed him some of the art, and he says, you got to put this out, first of all, and you got to show it to Bryce uh, Carlson over at uh, uh, Boom, who was friends with Jerry. And I was very reluctant. But I spoke with Bryce, and he was just a great guy. They seemed to get what the book was about, and uh, it wasn't. It happened pretty quickly. I just sort of fell into this this disagreement with them. Um, and well, well, was, when it when it feels right, and when it feels, I think that's it. Yeah, I yeah. think that's it. It was it was a thing where I was just scared to death, and uh, you know, I just he he said all the right stuff. I was like, please don't hurt me. Be gentle. <laughs> and he, he swept me off my feet and got me with some editors that were just frankly amazing. Sierra Hahn uh, really helped guide this thing and you know pushed me. We changed the title. The original title was St. Michael's Promise, uh, which I was very stubbornly holding on to. And they you know had to nicely explain to me that, look, it sounds like it's a religious book, first of all. Second of all, you're going to have copyright issues. Um, and she also pushed for me to add the last two chapters, which at the time I was reluctant to do. Uh, now I can't imagine the book without them because it addresses the period of time from the original ending to now, which the original ending has that more hopeful yeah. uh, thing with the kids. <laughs> and, and none of the things I thought would happen happened uh, during that time. And in fact, we lost several more family members. So I, I, I needed to bridge that gap and then uh, I also had, you know, my mother was a very tough person. And I knew that this is the kind of book that only could exist because she had passed away. If she'd been alive and I put this book out, she'd be furious with me. 
um, which still I have some guilt over. So I needed a chapter to address that. And uh, lastly, the, the, the very last chapter, which I never thought I would do where I just use photographs uh, instead of actual hand-drawn art was to, for the reader, make all these people real or specifically her. And it's a little like when you see these uh, bio films where they end the film with uh, pictures of the actual yeah. people. Uh, I kind of wanted something like that so that there was never a sense of uh, this is a cartoon villain and we have a clear distinction between the good guy and the bad guy. Uh, it may be that uh, none of that is, is valid and she just did bad things because she had a pretty horrendous life uh, and I did bad things because that's just being human and I, I, I'm, I'm really grateful to, to them for pushing me a little bit to, to change the book in the way we did. That's really cool. Um, something I kind of said at the beginning, but I didn't really push um, uh, for people is if any questions, any comments that you want to uh, come in, if you're watching, uh, please do jump in. Uh, Irish and Sketchy uh, is um, watching Love Mike's book. Got all teared up reading it. Amazing uh, work. Uh, thank so you. Thank you. And Johnny Fitz was one of the first people to say hi. And so... At nearly 55 minutes in. Hi, Johnny. Um, Johnny's, Johnny's <laughs> just awesome saying, yeah, such an awesome read. Yes. Um, I, I'm, I'm really curious about, um, because, I, th I mean, I've been trying to do this over the course of the last couple of years because I've been looking back at my career as a DJ, my career in doing this as comics. I've been kind of trying to piece things together. And the one thing that I do realize is that you are very much your own worst unreliable narrator. Um, and I'm curious, was um, Happiness a story that was pulled entirely from your own head, remembering, of course, um, that you are your own narrator? Or did you call on family and friends for details to kind of flesh out the story? I did. I did. Specifically, uh, my sister, who is 15 years older than me. So she got to meet a lot of family members that I, I just never did. Um, and in fact, one of the more important interviews I actually put into the book because it, it turned into a conversation where we realized, um, you know, we didn't grow up together. And so there was a sense of, of two strangers talking every time we would get together. Wow. I think that was the first time I realized uh, that we had essentially the same childhood. Uh, if, if not, maybe hers was a little worse. Uh, being gay, being being a woman, and the expectations my mother had for her. Uh, but we had essentially the same childhood. It just was separated by distance and time. And so we didn't share it. So we, there was no sense of camaraderie uh, until we started sort of nailing down some of these details. And, and one of the stories is in the book. I, I won't spoil it for anyone. But, um, you know, there's there's two scenes that mirror each other that happened almost exactly the same way for both of us, but like 15 years removed. Um, and so she was a huge source of information. It was harder to reach out to other uh, family members. So I tried to base things on it. I was, I was very clear about separating the stories by things that I had direct experience with and stories or that I could corroborate or stories that were, uh, part of my family lore and the myth making so that 
this is the story I was told. I don't know if this is how it happened. This is as true as I can present it. And uh, by the end of the book, it's clear why some of that stuff can be questioned. But um, it's also, you know, you mentioned it being from my point of view. Uh, and you see that in how I try to present some of the people. In the, there's there's a, a way that if, if there was a story that I couldn't corroborate 100%, but I had heard it over the years. I tried to present it in a way that uh, it felt like you were being told a story versus yeah. witnessing a thing. Um, so that hopefully if I did my job well, that's clear when you read the book that, okay, this may be some myth building that's based on real things. Um, for instance, I, I there's a, a quick uh, historical breakdown of my, my mother's life going from uh, different big events to sort of show her character. One of them was uh, when she was out looting uh, during a blackout in New York. And like, that was a thing that happened long before I was ever born. Obviously, uh, none of the people she was with were anyone I could reach out to. So that was a thing I had to do a lot of research on the, the blackout itself, try to nail down what neighborhoods it was in uh, and, and get a sense of what it may have looked like based on that. Um, there's another scene like that where, uh, <laughs> yeah, the, this is uh, my. I'm aunt. just, I'm just pulling, yeah, I'm pulling yeah, yeah. Uh, random kind of at this point. Yeah. So th there's there's a lot of, of mixing between. You know, I, I tried not to ever just give information in like a a journalistic way where it's sure. a little dry, um, but I tried to definitely separate between, you know. The th these are things I saw versus the myths that uh, come up in this particular page. You know, the, these cousins of mine would fight like, I mean, they were just the most violent guys and they, they didn't hate each other. It was just they were addicted to WWF wrestling and their dad thought it was the funniest thing when they'd beat the hell out of each other. Um, but you see it's starting to slide into myth by the last panel with how uh, forceful and strong a character their mother was and she was really uh important to us when we first moved to pennsylvania so you know there's sort of this flow you have to try to manage as you get through the story um i know that your workflow um is pretty fluid from job to job and depending yeah. on the gig to hand i mean how did you settle on the method of choice when it came to happiness because if i remember correctly you don't do much or you don't do too much in terms of digital. It's you very much a case of pen, paste, yep. pencil to paper uh, yeah. kind of guy. So how how did you just determine on your method of choice for this very personal story? Right. Uh, I, I really tried. To, again, you have to make these deals with yourself when you know uh, there's a bumpy road ahead. And I knew that some of this material might be tough to get through. So I was probably more strict uh, about the the normal method I would use. So I just would do, I, I don't normally, when I'm, uh, when I'm drawing something I've written, I don't normally do a full script. In this case, we did uh, number one so that editorial could understand what the hell I was doing. Uh, and we spent just about a year on that script wow. because I really wanted to make sure it was tight and, and uh, there were no, the path was very clear, you know? Um, 
Then I did very tight layouts and we went over those, which I don't normally do, but it's a step in the process that I felt like uh, it would just keep me very like rigidly set in my, in my past so that I wouldn't, if, if things got rough, I wouldn't be easily, you know, bumped off. Uh, so it was essentially the same process I use now, just very rigidly nailed down. So strict layouts, we went over that. Strict pencils, we went over those. Uh, you know, heavy inks. The the one step that I was the least involved in was the colors. Because um, even the letters, uh, Clem and I, we, we he created a font based on my handwriting. So even the letters are, are uh, based as if I had written them myself. That must make it a very surreal read. It's very weird, especially because he went to the trouble of so when we were working on it, I would submit handwritten letters and he would say, give me, you know, like 10 A's, 10 B's. Uh, and he would focus on the letters that are used more often versus ones that were used less often. So that font is designed. So every time you type, say, the letter A, you got a different A. So it's it really looks that much more like it's handwritten. Uh, it was the colors that I sort of kept some distance from and partly was because uh, I hired some past students of mine, uh, Ariana Plonchinski and Sam Bowen, who were uh, some students of mine at PCAD. And I loved their work, and I knew that their work ethic was such that I didn't have to worry about it too much once uh, we started this thing rolling. And I just made a Pinterest board as like, a, like an inspiration board for what I wanted in terms of palette. Uh, a lot, we looked at a lot of European comics versus uh, the more bright and vivid American comics. Um, and we had a, you know, went out, met, discussed the colors and they were very clear on what I wanted. And I'd, I'd left it alone because I wanted to make sure that, uh, I wasn't, if I do work with another artist, I try not to treat them like they're an extension of myself. So they brought stuff to the colors that I wouldn't have done. Uh, I can also imagine at that point as well, it's a case of you'd invested so much time and energy and focus on the story and the 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 framework and the script that it, it was a case of more you wanted to just let it go a little bit and have a bit of distance and almost see what their perspective on the whole story yeah was. not at first i mean this book was always intended to be black and white so i oh, was wow. resistant to color at all um and when Boom was pushing for the color, I, I wasn't thrilled about it. So I thought, if, if I'm, if I'm going to have color, I'm going to have to be really controlling and do it myself. And recognize that pragmatically it wouldn't make sense because I still had my workload at Marvel. It would have meant pushing back the release of the book itself. Um, and I was lucky enough that I knew these two artists' work personally and... I felt I could trust them. Had we just hired this out to some random colorist, I'm sure it would have been great, but I would have been much more of a pain in the ass about it. Um, with these guys, I don't even know. I think I literally had only one color note for the entire book, and it was only because of um, buildings. It was the weirdest thing because uh, they live in the next city over, and they're downtown. The buildings are... It's 
basically it's uh the closer it'll be different, are... different concrete it would be different no, well no it's a, it was painted brick it was the odd it's just a weird thing that no one would know except me but um <laughs> basically there's there's philadelphia and there's all these little uh, uh towns around it that you know like most big cities uh and they're in lancaster which is essentially like a suburb of philly now <laughs> because they have a direct train line so there's there's more money there and then half an hour uh, west of them is us, and we are sort of the, the the poor cousin that no one wants at the party because things disappear, and and someone's uh you know, I should probably drop it there. But the point yeah. is, <laughs> um, we're a poorer city, and I never it never occurred to me till we started working on this book because I'm I, I work in Lancaster. It's a, where the college uh, is that I teach at. And people go through the trouble of painting their homes, uh, their brick homes, different colors, just to make it look nice. And that's not a thing here. And so that was the only color note I had. They kept painting the the houses, or rather coloring the houses as if they'd been painted. And I'm like, that's it's it's the only thing I need you to change. Um, but otherwise, they nailed it. Everything else was right on the money. That's Especially really, the mood really change things they did. I should I should point that out. There are times when they just threw a realistic palette out the window and you would just would use a color that fit the mood and push what I was trying to do in a way that, that I didn't see coming, which was a, a, a huge pleasure. So I'm very grateful to those ladies. That's fantastic. Um, you've got a couple of people jumping in on the comments. Uh, well, yeah. some more uh, positive uh, reinforcement. Uh, Michael Thompson <laughs> saying hi, Mike, uh, mighty Michael. If uh, awesome, Johnny's, Johnny's asking a question. Um, and then we'll we'll come back to happiness. We'll follow. What advice could or would you give to anyone who's giving uh, considering giving up art altogether? Whoa. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Big question. No, no. Uh, my advice would be, and and I know uh, I know Johnny a little bit. He's a Patreon supporter. He's super super positive, um, but he's had some struggles. I, my advice is just don't. I had a period where uh, I couldn't get work and I was struggling. Uh, I was working at a diner. I was getting up every day at five in the morning to go cook. And I was just exhausted all the time. Um, and it was difficult to try to make art. And I hit a point where I remember saying to my wife that like, I think I'm just done. I think I'm going to quit. And literally got physically ill. I, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a person that normally gets ill. Um, I got like a, a slight fever. It was as if I had caught the flu. Um, it was the weirdest damn thing. And I know it was all in my head. It was entirely psychosomatic, but I felt like shit. It was really horrible. Um, and I realized that it was my issue was uh, expecting something from the art that is not fair. It's not, what's, is that, uh, there's that Gibran quote about you get the art, you don't get the you don't get the the benefits from it. You get the actual art making. Um, anything beyond that is not necessarily yours, and it's not something that should be part of the equation when making art. And I know that sounds awful, and it sounds like an excuse to like not profit or make money from your art. But I realized that like I was looking at it as I can't get gigs, therefore, what's the point of making art? Or uh, 
it was just an unhealthy way to to like link the art to whatever my goals were at the time and so once i got my head straight and realized like look i'm just gonna make this stuff and if i never ever get an audience then so be it but it won't be because i didn't try sure. um and i'm not saying that's johnny's situation i know that his is unique i'm just trying to use what happened with me as an example of i don't know that if you have a calling that it is a thing you just drop um and if you do there will be some consequences for you psychologically not necessarily getting physically sick like i did but you will always sort of have something that feels undone something that's missing um i think it's something that's valuable even if you end up never publishing or getting work and it's a horrible way i'm not trying to discourage anyone it's a horrible way to look at it but i i happen to just believe it's also the more healthy way um i was happier at times when i was self-publishing and not making any money and we were losing money in fact um than on some gigs i've had where where we were being paid well and i realized it was really about how my expectations for the work were different when i was doing it to get a paycheck um that wasn't i mean that's a little hacky obviously but it also just made me less happy about the work itself and made me less proud of it uh whereas you know when i was writing my name in a park somewhere <laughs> or on a wall somewhere i was never going to get anything other than maybe a a, a sentence or a fine <laughs> but yeah. that felt fulfilling in a way uh that that the paying work didn't so I would really implore Johnny, like just, just draw and try to find the joy in that. And if if nothing comes of it, then that's that's a tragedy. But that doesn't mean you. Well, it, it, you say tragedy. I mean, a tragedy yeah, on, a, on a on a financial level and on a um, a level when you're wanting to reach more people. But right. I think there's more platforms for people to reach an audience now and I, I, i'm very much of a, a, the uh, the case that if you put something out there will be someone who to pick it up yes. even if it's just one person or if it's yeah. just a couple of people um, that's how i so, started but I, I mean i think what you're talking about is that put the effort to put something out and actually allow yourself to be open enough for someone to pick something up and i think that's i, I would even take it back a little bit further and say not even putting it out i mean if 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 you kept a sketchbook drew every day and never showed a soul but it made you feel happy then perhaps that's enough um if you just go out every day and sit at a park and draw people and you never you never afford a model or you can't go to an art school perhaps that's enough um i had a painting professor who used to tell us about um uh and i don't know if this is true but he would say in in uh universities in the uk they would teach the students they all had to carry these little watercolor sets uh and then he was an older guy so i'm sure this was a generational thing and they would they would be pushed as part of their education to just go out and observe the world and make little watercolors they clearly weren't expecting to pursue careers as you know watercolorists or painters but it taught them something uh about observing the world that maybe made their life a little more fulfilling so that's what i mean is even if he chooses not to put it out in the world and you're right there's way more outlets there's even if you don't do something in print between webtoons tapas like 
there's there's lots of places to put your work out um, but even if you don't even if you're just doing it for your own self-fulfillment maybe that's okay that makes sense um he, he turns around and replies it makes so much sense i've been thinking of it on and off for a while i've struggled with getting back into it i'm sorry you ended up um i will because I of what happened yeah, yeah. Uh, you're ill yeah thank you for your answer um, Michael Thompson, um, I admire Mike's dedication to his craft. Though I'm not an artist, I use Mike's work ethic as inspiration to hone my skills as an educator. That's really sweet. Yeah, so, Mike's a great guy too. That's 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 amazing. He's actually a teacher, and obviously right now is it's a scary time to be a teacher. So yeah. I salute you, sir. Good luck. Um, I'm going to ask one question more about um, happiness. We'll follow, okay. and then I'm going to throw you some curveballs at your way and then okay. i'm gonna let you get off and enjoy the rest of your day um in terms of approaching uh the story um obviously there's going to be i mean you've talked about the the fact that there are elements of your own story which was hard to approach but what was would you say the hardest part to approach and conversely what was also the easiest to yeah. kind of uh, to take on when it comes to to the book uh so I'll start with the easiest. I, I guess the easiest was the the homework, right? Just the what do neighbor and this is the one that was more work intensive. So it's weird to say that it was easy, but um, you know, going out to my old neighborhoods and taking reference photos or using Google uh, Maps to to retrace steps because I tried very much to make each of those places a real real place. You could find those neighborhoods if you tried hard enough. Um, and that I could get lost in, and it was uh, perhaps not brainless, but but just uh, uh, remote enough from the subject matter that I was able to do it easily. Uh, the hardest part was probably um, towards the end dealing with, and I don't want to give too much away about the book, but dealing with just how much um, my mother had hidden of herself from me you know, even down to not knowing what uh, her birthday was, um, not knowing much about her at all. So, you you know, we, we had sort of, she had kept me from the rest of the family to the point where there was really just this sense of, of us against the world and no one else cared. Um, wow. So when she passed, and, I, and a lot of this stuff I found out at her funeral, or rather after the funeral, when the family got together, and we started to compare notes and we realized everybody had an individual piece of a puzzle that no one knew was a puzzle. Um, so when we put those together and I realized like not only had we lost her, but I don't even have a distinct memory that I know for certain. If I didn't see it myself, I don't know that any of it was true. Uh, that was difficult to, to manage and get past. And, um, I'm often asked during these interviews, like, was this cathartic? And uh, the answer is just, it, it really was not. Uh, partly because there's a lot of stuff that was left out of the book because I made it clear early on I didn't want to do a tell-all. So there's a lot of, uh, I mean, if, if, if this is making folks feel sad, then uh, the rest of the story maybe would have uh, made it just a very unpleasant read. So uh, that probably was the hardest part, was just dealing with the 
sense of nothing being resolved or or finished or or even knowing for certain what I could know uh, as a fact, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's when it's described as an autobiographical uh, graphic novel. Um, while it is based on your life and it's based on the, the story of your life, it's it is an incomplete it, it is an incomplete story in that it's a sense of yeah. uh, rather than a, a, a narrative and there's a definite uh, uh, idea of your it's, I, it's interesting that I mean I, I wasn't going to ask about whether it was cathartic or not because uh, that's that's between the relationship between you yeah. and, and the yeah. book that's that's not well, to do with you. us uh, <laughs> it's nothing to do with us. Um, yeah. But certainly from the, the reading it, um, there is that sense of you're brushing away the, the smoke um, yeah. to, to kind of see more of the picture behind. And, yeah. and uh, then I think, there's just more smoke. <laughs> and, then, and then there's, yeah, that, yeah, that was going to be where I was going to go next. That's interesting. Okay. Um, very quick fire then, and we'll lighten the mood a little bit with a couple of um, uh, other characters. Um, and we'll talk, because, I mean, I kind of came into your work via um, Spider-Man. Okay, your, awesome. your Spider-Man uh, book. I mean, who was your Spider-Man growing up or when you were also de developing your art for that particular character? Who were the Spidey artists that kind of caught your attention? Because I think I see a couple uh, in, in your work. Oh, no, I'd be curious to hear what you said first. Is, would that be, would that uh, be too No, cool? no. Okay. <laughs> I, get, I get a lot of comparisons that I don't always you don't always see after I, I sort of examine it but I'd, be, I'd love to hear what yours what your selections um, are I, I mean I, I see McFarlane in there do you really yeah okay. um it, it's only for the, the the backgrounds and the the, the way yeah. that uh, the, the 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 landscapes work because um the way that you put Spidey into uh, certainly in, in, certainly in motion as well yeah. I, I see yeah. that that's awesome because um, no one ever picks up on that, and I made a decision. Well, I think this I I come at from come at it from the uh, um, Dave Gibbons route because Dave okay. Gibbons always talks about whenever he was reading American comics um, that he always saw like the water towers on the top of buildings yeah. and stuff. And for a Brit, we're like going, "What the what the hell? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> what, what's that?" So we we really we kind we get a sense of American architecture from our comics. Uh, right. So the whole, the New York, um, the skyscrapers and the, the way that the dynamics of Spidey and because um, Spidey is very much a New Yorker and it's, yes. we get us, we, I think we, as Brits, we got a sense of what New York was like from his relationship with the, the background. So the, right. there was that, um, Ramita Jr. as well. Um, I think yeah. there's that, that kind of well, sense. Yeah. Yeah. But go on then your, your turn. <laughs> oh yeah. So, um, definitely both uh uh it's funny because um being so i teach anatomy and i, I mentioned my background and one of the things about spider-man is that um i've always felt like there's there's the two approaches to him there's one where he's a guy with a spine and the other is that he's is everything is made of rubber and nothing matters and he can do whatever he, and those are more fun um, but the, the artist in me that studied anatomy, it's, it's, I can't get past the, the rigidness of the anatomy. So I did look at McFarlane quite a bit to try to say like, okay, where is the, where's the cutoff? Uh, where's like the point where I would feel personally like I went too far. 
and uh, he definitely helped influence how how rubbery I tried to make Spidey. Um, so it's funny because no one ever picks up on that. Usually, I get comparisons like uh, Gil Kane. Yeah. Or uh, lately, uh, I've I've gotten some comparisons to Imam Imam. Then sorry, I can't say that too many M's and N's. I I I've met the guy. I think I actually made a ass in front of him and the missus. Um, trying to say his surname, so no, I, I'm I'm right there with you. But um, that one, I was surprised to hear because I was definitely looking at at. Uh, this is a weird comparison. I would look at uh, uh, Keen. Is an at uh, what's his name? Is it Bill Keen? He's an animator at Disney, and he worked on uh, the Tarzan movie. And it's not Spider Man, but I was looking at that quite a bit. Uh, uh, I see that now. You said it. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it's not Spider Man, but if you if you think of that movie, that's sort of the approach Listen, I was. You know what? I mean, I, I mean, there's several things about that movie. I'm a big fan. Um, not necessarily the soundtrack, but that's because yeah. I'm a. Yeah. I'm a I'm, <laughs> Listen, I'm a I'm a Peter Gabriel, not a Phil <laughs> Collins. We'll go with that. But um, I mean, there's um, Deep Canvas which I think is just one of the most impressive pieces of technology ever created. But that shot where he's going through the, uh, around the tree and then out, you stick a Spidey suit on him. Yes, that's exactly how I felt. I remember literally watching that film with my kids and going, if I ever get a Spider-Man book, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so absolutely, that was a huge inspiration. And, uh, and it worked for me too, because I remember with the art of, for Tarzan, uh, Keen was working at the Disney had a studio in, in Paris at the time, and I guess they handed one of the drawings to an anatomy instructor, and he did a draw what we call drawovers, where you do the anatomy on top of the the figure, and showed him like everything's there. It's it's weird, but everything is there. So that's kind of what I was looking for with my Spider Man was that uh, it was still elastic and 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 uh fluid and movable like moving in a way that didn't seem normal but everything was still there you could still believe there was a guy inside that suit um so that was a big inspiration for sure cool. yeah and, Although I, I, oh, shout out to uh, my, my first issue um uh, i was working with an anchor named terry pallet who had inked a bunch of their uh deadpool stuff for me and he's an awesome guy and he caught early on um i'm terrible with patterns and I was doing a Spidey pattern the wrong direction. And Terry was like quietly fixing it for me at first. And he's like, Mike, the, the, the little points always go away from the face. I'm like, what? It's really awesome. Thank you. So shout out to him for saving my ass. That must be a little bit like when you you learn how to sign your surname and you, you're wanting to change it and you're having to force yourself to change your surname. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was like something about Spidey. It's funny because it's one of the things I can remember drawing as a really young child. And I always would draw him weird. Like, uh, I, 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 the few times I did go to a convention, some poor fan asked me to draw Spider-Man, so I drew him. And he has that spider, the belt part with the spider pattern on it. God forgive me. I don't know how I, I, I made them into briefs, like Superman. <laughs> and I didn't realize it was wrong. And somebody comes over and says, dude, what the hell is that? <laughs> So I, I'm notoriously bad for anything with a pattern or like um, I also did a sketch for someone once at a Marvel booth in, in I don't remember where and he asked for Captain America instead of the A I put a star on his head 
and he quietly just accepted the sketch and went home. And then I saw it years later on a comic art fan's site. And the guy's like, yeah, I guess this is an alternate version, but he was, <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and the other one was, I wanted to ask about Deadpool, uh, because, uh, the character has evolved so much over the years from that original, um, the, the hard Merc, uh, one that would take no shit all the way through to, um, I mean, his, his personality is like shifting sand, uh, yeah. at this point. What do you think of Deadpool when you see cosplayers or people online taking him like this merry prankster? Um, cause your Deadpool was kind of, it was in the middle. It was, he had the real spine to him and he was a real set of sense of menace, but he also had the, 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 the playfulness at that point. Yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I want to also point out, uh, you're right, and I thought that Jerry, and I'm not just saying this because he's my friend, um, he and Brian in, in the beginning when we first started, Brian Posehn was writing also, uh, but Jerry did an amazing job of sort of explaining why the continuity is what it is and how the Weapon X program tied into that and why Deadpool himself uh, was unsure about anything about his past, which made it um, really struck me, uh, as you can imagine, with happiness and the uh, not knowing what the hell's true and what's not. Um, so for me, Deadpool is that that all those things at once because of this, the way the guy's been having to get through this world that doesn't make a lick of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and he seems to understand. Thing. I mean, there's a part of me that always thought of him as like, um, you, you never knew whether he was getting lucky or he was very good at something. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm okay with, you mentioned cosplayers. I think part of the reason they tend to play him as as uh, a fun character is because that's a hundred percent how it makes them feel, right? And um, what fun would it be to like walk around cosplaying Deadpool as like, you know, the murderous psycho version? Um, so for me, I think it's and and the cosplayers are like, I mean, first of all, they're like like they're legion, right? They're just tons yeah. of them. And they're super dedicated, and they're always they're always fun. They're never like I should probably knock wood again, but I, I haven't run into a cosplayer, a Deadpool cosplayer, that's been a drag to talk to. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, they they really are just enjoying the culture, enjoying the con in a way that I never understood uh, early on. So I think it's great with them. As far as the character for me. Um, you know, our approach is always Jerry. Jerry would talk about the the, the Pagliacci comparison, right? The the kind of the sad clown. Um, so he would be making these jokes, and you kind of knew they were coming from a place of pain. So I think probably that's. I mean, the world's cra crazy. You know, this sure. year obviously we talked about it. this is a scary year, um, and I wonder sometimes if that's not the right. I mean, I I don't think we should all get. You know katanas and cut people down mm -hmm. but um wonder if just deciding that like nothing is to be taken seriously is not the most sane approach to the world especially when you're kind of hurting a little 
Um, Careful, you're, he you're heading into Batman killing joke. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one bad day, one bad year kind of uh, approach to things. I mean, the, the, I think the reason why Deadpool, uh, Sunny has come up this weekend for me is uh, um, we've been talking online for myself uh, about um, characters and ownership and how some creators, um, they have created a character and how that character's kind of morphed over, over the years. So, I mean, so for example, um, the, the Harley Quinn that um, Bruce Tim and Paul Dini created is not the Harley Quinn we know now because I, I was talking um, to um, the creator of um, Punchline. Um, so how how Harley's evolved over the time. And then I've been talking to people this weekend about Rob Liefeld has this m massive ownership of Deadpool as a co-creator, but that's not the Deadpool we know now. It, it's a it's almost like a totally different character. There's this there's this disconnect. So there's whenever he turns around and says, "No, that's my character," I'm going, "That's not the character you <laughs> created, dude." Um, there's a there's a whole. <laughs> What, there's a widening chasm behind what you did and what is accepted and appreciated as the character now. So there's there's that conversation that's been going. Between you, you mentioned Batman, in that like you know Batman can be a distinctly different character depending on the, the creative team, right? Like sometimes he's, you know, a great detective. Other times he's just beating information out of people. And um, I think that's sort of what happens with Deadpool in that each team, and, and, and I don't want to spoil our ending, um, but it's the reason why we ended our run the way we did, with a sort of reset where we were specifically saying, look, whoever comes after us, you can keep going with what we did, or you can just start over again, because that's what we do with Deadpool. Everybody seems to start over with their yeah. version of it. Um, I will say that the version in the movie in my opinion, and, and people may not agree, but I think he very much reflects uh, Jerry and, and the, because I know that, like, you know, way. And, I, I can and, see that. Yeah, there's lots of people who brought the humor to Deadpool. Um, there's something about the, 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 the heartbreak mixed with the humor that's in the movies that I saw uh, directly linked to Jerry. And I know that, uh, those guys know each other, and I think they're going to make a movie out of one of Jerry's books. So it may be that you know they paid close attention to it. Yeah, I mean the the, the scene um, in the first film when this is before he'd become uh, Deadpool, and Wade is as a merc, yeah. and he's terrorizing the kid um, <laughs> with the pizza. Yeah. yeah, I was reading, I was watching that. I'm going, yeah, this look this reads like a jerry duggan book does yeah, this this yeah, is yeah. yeah i get that there's, there's a couple of gags in there like even when he spells out the name with bodies you know we did that in our run we didn't spell out a name uh he was sending coordinates to, to someone and he spelled it out with bodies uh they're not that they i'm not implying that they stole the gag i'm just saying that there's like there's to me a very direct line from what jerry was doing and what what worked so well in the movie yeah Oh, I still think Watchmen stole it from Deadpool. Uh, I still think I still think Watchmen stole that from Deadpool. But there we go. Are you talking about the show? Yeah, the show the, you haven't seen the show? Sorry. You really? Yeah, I would recommend checking that out. That's a whole other ball game. That's something else. Um, we'll finish on one final comment. Uh, this is from Johnny um, again. Um, this is uh, Happiness Will Follow. Is a cool read. I was able to relate a ton to the book. I commend and appreciate Mike for putting it out because it takes guts. To put that out absolutely 
Well, well the book's out, the book is out now. It's published by Boom. Um, I would heartily recommend everyone uh, picking it up. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much indeed for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a real pleasure. No worries. Um, where is the best place for to to send people um, in terms of following what you're doing, um, social media? I mean, is Kickstarter and Patreon a good, uh, a good yeah, place to start? Patreon uh, is, is where I am putting out the most of my own work outside of my Marvel output. But I'm on all the social medias. I mean, if you look up my name, you'll find me everywhere, basically. Uh, well, yeah, I'll, page... I'll, I'll be following along, as oh, always. Thank so Thank you. Thank you. But it's been, like I say, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I, I mean, when we started out, we said, oh, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Oops. I think we've done it. I think we've, yeah, we've done okay. Run over a little yeah. bit. And now, and, now, and now the kids are banging, banging on the door and... <laughs> Well, thank you. I, I, this was a real pleasure, though. I, I, I appreciated the answers. I'm sorry, the questions were uh, really smartly done. I, 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 some stuff I wasn't, uh, I don't know that I was thinking about. So now I have some stuff to go back and think about for the next book. So thank you. I hope I haven't completely derailed your day. No, no, <laughs> uh, no, 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 this is good stuff. I mean, I, I always prefer uh, these kind of questions where, you know, I'm not necessarily, I don't have a stock answer. And they forced me outside of you know what I would normally say, so I appreciate it. At least I'd done it without enforcing you to have hot wings or something. You see, <laughs> that, as long as I haven't tortured you in that regard, so that's cool. Appreciate Mike, it. thank you very much indeed for coming on, sir. Thank you. Excellent stuff. It is a great book, and I would heartily recommend it, you checking it out. That's Happiness Will Follow, published by Boom Studios. It was published at the uh, I think it was about two weeks before, uh, two weeks into last month. Do go check it out. It's very much worthwhile, uh, your read. Right. Um, that's us. Thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us for Talking Con, a cup of tea with Englishman in San Diego for today. Um, we are going to be back tomorrow with our normal show and our normal time, so please do join us for that. Uh, I think it's going to be a fun one because um, Cullen Bunn is somebody who I've kind of seen out of the corner of my eye. Uh, he's, we've kind of talked, but we've not actually had a conversation. So I'm um, looking forward to, uh, to, to, to talking to him. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun. That's going to be tomorrow, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. GMT. Next Sunday, uh, we're going to be talking to Julie Tate. This is the director of Lakes Festival. Really curious to see uh, about what her approach to, to the virtual Lakes Festival is going to be. Slightly different to your actual virtual con, your normal virtual con, purely because at the end of the day, the Lakes Festival is like an Anglomate festival. It's more of um, its separate locations, scattered, very, very many schools and disciplines being covered within the uh, the, the whole festival. How they're going to translate that to a virtual event, I'm really curious to talking to Julie about that. Talking to Chris Condon and Jacob Phillips on the 20th about That Texas Blood, another book which I, if you haven't checked out, you really, really need to go and read. Excellent stuff about that. And Sunday the 27th is somebody I'm looking forward to do, talking to as well. Um, slightly intimidated because I've been told that she really knows her stuff when it comes to crowdfunding. Uh, she knows about the mechanics and the maths and... Um, I'm hoping I'm not going to get lost, but Elsa Chaterier is someone that I'm really looking forward to talking to um, as well. That's our lineup so far. If we do get any incidental guests, like we have done with Mike, do jump in on the uh, the subscribe and the notifications. Hit that button because it will. We, you never know; an episode may just come out of nowhere and uh, over the course of a midweek. Uh, so please do hit subscribe, hit notifications. It basically uh, keeps you up to date with what we're up to. Thank you very much indeed for watching. Hope you've enjoyed it. Do take care. 
and from myself and from Mike Hawthorne, uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Um, hopefully we'll see you tomorrow for another Talking Com, Cup of Tea in Richmond, San Diego. Take care.